Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts. Can you please help support this vital ministry? Discerning Hearts is a 100% listener-supported Catholic apostolate. Now through the end of August, please prayerfully consider making a sacrificial gift to help us raise $30,000 to fund truly life-changing Catholic programming and prayer. The financial contributions of listeners like you enables us to continue this important ministry. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Your donations are fully tax-deductible. Again, between now and the end of August, please visit DiscerningHearts.com to make your donation. Thank you, and God bless you from all of us at Discerning Hearts. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club with myself, Father Fessio, Vivian Dudro here in San Francisco with me, and Joseph Pierce in South Carolina. We're continuing our discussion on... In Defense of Sanity, which is the best essays of G.K. Chesterton, according to those who selected them, Dale Alquist, Aid Mackey, and Joseph Pierce himself, the same. And uh, it, <laughs> it's taken us some time to get through this book because uh, each essay, or many of the essays, are, are quite interesting and provocative, and we, we are not virtuous enough to manage our time to get everything within our framework here. But we left off uh, just before his essay on the book of Job, which begins on page 91. And after I read these essays, I often put a little uh, comment on the title page. And so when I read this the first time, my comment was, beyond me, exclamation point. I read it a second time, and I erased that comment, and I wrote, masterful, exclamation point. Because the the book of Job is always intrigued, well, always, for as long as I read, read it, intrigued me. And in the Office of Readings, which priests and religious, uh, most religious are obliged to say, uh, this is the time of year, we just finished, as a matter of fact, a couple of days ago, when we take selections from the book of Job. And it, it always seemed to me like beautiful poetry, but it puzzled me. And in particular, after Job's three friends who came to tell him, look, stop protesting, you're, you're a sinner like everybody else. But the whole point is that Job is innocent, you know. And then Elihu, younger, youngest of the four, comes, well, I'm going to speak now. And he says, Job, you know, what are you doing questioning God? I mean, uh, his ways are not our ways. And I thought, well, that, that sounds like what God is going to say. But actually, God, as Chesterton points out, he rebukes both the optimists and the pessimists. Anyway, I, I thought, I thought, Chesterton's commentary on Job was really, after I read it a second time, one of the most, you know, inspiring that I've read. 
So what else to say about that? Don't you think he has a, a sort of fresh perspective? Chesterton does. He's not a scripture scholar. He's not, he, you know, he's really just opening it with, with a kind of openness because he doesn't have any preconceived ideas as to what it you know, what scholars have already said. And that gives him, I, I think, a, a perspective that allows him to say things that might strike the ear as original, but certainly also ring true. Well, also, he, he makes that distinction between the history of Job, where the scholars say, well, this was probably not written by the same author as that, and this was added later, and so on. He says, I don't know enough to talk about that. But I want to talk about the philosophy of Job. I mean, he takes it as a uh, as a work that is coherent in itself, whatever the literary history might be. And so he's going to talk about the philosophy of it. Right. And that's what, and so then he's got that freedom, I think, to not be stuck on any one approach or theory. He's just reading it fresh as, as it's probably meant to be, because if it is a, a, a poem, an every man kind of poem meant to, 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 to have meaning for every life, then it ought to be read that way, don't you think, without getting bogged down in scholarship? Well, I think that's what the authors and the editors and the people who, who copied the manuscripts thought. I think it's what God also thought. Uh, and as Rassinger Benedict said so often, historical critical studies and exegesis should always lead us to understand and appreciate more of the text not less. And, you know, who, someone famously said, we murder to dissect. That is, in order to understand an animal, you have to kill them and dissect them. Uh, and that can happen, too, with literary works. That uh, and Joseph would be the expert on this. But you have to take it, especially it's been handed out down for centuries, as uh, a unit, as, as something unitary. But he says on page 94 at the bottom, this is an insight that I was struck by, three lines up. The saints of Christianity are supposed to be like God, to be, as it were, little statuettes of him. The Old Testament hero is no more supposed to be of the same nature as God than a saw or a hammer is supposed to be the same shape as a carpenter. This is the main key and characteristic of the Hebrew scriptures as a whole. And I I think there's a lot in that. I mean, you look at, you know, David, uh, multiple wives and concubines, and murdered someone, and then lied to someone, and committed adultery. And then you look at Solomon, who was the wisest of men for a while, but then he himself was corrupted by all his wives and concubines. Uh, so you, you, you don't... In fact, it's interesting in the... In the Eastern Orthodox churches, I believe they have feast days for St. Isaiah uh, and maybe St. David. I don't know. But in the Western church, we, we don't have that. We don't celebrate the feast days of Old Testament figures. I do have a question, Father, about that very point you just made. Yes. About what Chesterton said. And that is. What what does what do the Old Testament writers mean when they say that God looked at David and saw a man after his own heart? Well, it's 
it's a common dialectical complex thing. Uh, yes, in some respects, God saw David as a man of his own heart, in the early David especially, but certainly not the adulterous David and not the murderous David. So, Right. I mean, he's- I, I, I'm not a scholar uh, of theology at all or scripture at all uh, and make no pretenses uh, as such but the, but the book of Job and um, it, it seems to me that there's an irony going on because on the one hand he's not being punished for any sin he's committed and yet it's quite clear from his response to the punishment that he's not sinless um, you know the, the, the very plaintiveness of Job in in saying well what, you know, why is this happening to me seems to beg the question as to, um, you know, if someone's really sinless, um, they just completely trust the will of God and they would not be plaintive. Of course, we're all plaintive because we're not sinless either. But so in that sense, the book of Job, I think it, Job is an everyman figure, but he's not as holy, I, I think, as, uh, as, as he might like to think he is. And I think that's, that's part, part, of, part of the irony of the, of the text. Well, I mean, I, but I don't think we had... We should look at Job as a historical figure, but as a representation of the question, why do innocent people suffer? Because there are people who are innocent. I mean, little children who suffer, you know. Uh, and, and so that, that's the question he's posing. So I don't think we can, we can psychologize Job that much. The whole point is that he's presented as someone who actually is innocent, who, who has followed the law and so on. And, well, wouldn't you say? And by the way, and at the end, God does not say that Job is guilty of anything. God just right. says, well, so, "Who are you?" <laughs> right. So, isn't it a question not whether Job is sinless, because no man is? The question is: Is the suffering he's enduring somehow caused by some sin he's committed? And this is the great mystery that you just pointed to, Father, when. The innocent, I mean, no one is perfectly innocent. When the innocent suffer, you know, uh, are we supposed to be looking for some reason in their behavior as to why they're suffering what they're suffering? And 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 this book, I, I think um, Chesterton says somewhere kind of how revolutionary this book is, right, for the history of, of Jewish understanding Oh, I wish I could. I'm not find sure it what now. what is it he's saying again. <laughs> um, he says that this is a key pivotal moment in the Jewish understanding of things. Um, to to unlink suffering with some direct cause in your own sin that that right. And I think going back to what you said earlier on this, shortly earlier, uh, that the question is. Is this suffering commensurate with the guilt? Right. Uh, that is to say, e- even if one sees guilt, uh, Job humanly as in some way sinful or uh, having faults, is this kind of a consequence commensurate with those faults? And, and yeah, but isn't the question posed at the beginning of the book of Job that the devil basically says that uh, he's only he only he's only obedient and a good follower of you because he's never suffered. If he suffered, he'd soon turn his back on you. And that, and that, and God permits the devil to, to 
cause the suffering, if you like, um, in order to see exactly how much Job does love him. Um, oh, but please, please. I found what I was looking for because the danger is if you see the suffering we endure in this life as somehow directly related to some fault on our part, rather than just part of being a human being, then the obverse tends to be believed as well, that prosperity is a sign of virtue and holiness, right? And so on 102, Chesterton says, Yes. Um, uh, if you know, prosperity um, is regarded as reward of virtue, it will be regarded as a symptom of virtue. Yes. Men will leave off the heavy task of making good men successful. They will adopt the easier task of making our successful men good. That, that This, which has happened throughout modern commerce and journalism, is the ultimate nemesis of the wicked optimism of the comforters of Job. Yeah. If the Jews could be saved from it, the book of Job saved them. That's a very profound perception of the consequences of this trying to find causality behind suffering or the lack of it. As if in that moment in time, which is why the friends of Job are mistaken to think that they can analyze the situation in just this moment of time and figure out what caused what to try to get Job to repent of something that he's done. But also the fact that Chesterton then links Job to Christ. Exactly. The man of suffering, the man of sorrows that's prefigured in Job. That's at yeah, the and last. And even Christ, you know, in the, in his agony in the garden, is tempted to question, right? And not, you know, if it be possible for this cup to pass me by, but then, but I will not mind be done. You know, as if you know, he is the innocent victim, literally. Um, but you know, he, he even even he at this point is sort of questioning: Does he have to go through all of this suffering? Is this necessary? So, if you like, but you can see Job as a prefigurement of Christ. In that respect, well, here, here's a parallel between Job and Christ. Also, they come to Jesus and they say, "By what authority do you do this?" And Jesus doesn't answer that question. He says, "Well, was John the Baptist of God or of man?" And they don't want to answer that question because if they say of God, then why don't you follow him? If you say of man, the people will go against him. So. Jesus often does not answer questions. Uh, in, in fact, rarely does he actually give a direct answer. For example, shall we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Show me the coin whose image is on it. Give to God what is God's to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's not really an answer to their question. It's, it's rather he's pointing question to them. And so on page 99, Chesterton says, this I say, new paragraph there, this I say is the first fact touching the speech, the fine inspiration by which God comes to in at the end, not to answer riddles, but to propound them. You know, so Job said, why does this happen to me? You know, why am I suffering when I have not committed a crime which, which should deserve this? Where were you when I made the sun? Where were you when I measured the depths of the sea, you know? Yes, it's a big lesson in humility is what it is. Yeah. I think further down he says, the refusal of God to explain his design 
is itself a burning hint of his design. The riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. <laughs> That's a great chesedon. We'll return to the Foreign Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. Or on page 100, new paragraph, this we may call the third point. Job puts forward a note of interrogation. God answers with a note of exclamation, exclamation point, you know. So it, 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 it's wonderful when you think about the Old Testament, how much of it, it also coherent with itself and that Job, which was not a Jewish book. I mean, it was a poem that was, that was non-Jewish brought into the Old Testament canon, but it's a prefigurement in a shadow, a luminous shadow of the truly innocent man who truly suffers, you know, Christ. But how, how could you have seen that before Christ? It would have been an enigmatic book. Yep. Should we go on to cheese? 
<laughs> yes, please. Uh, <laughs> you know. I mean, I, I actually must confess that I have nothing particular on this one. I've got quite a lot on the next one on gargoyles, but but cheese actually is one of my favorite essays, as it's one of my favorite foods. If people ask me what, what what's my favorite food, I always say shellfish, shellfish and cheese. But I think the key thing about about it is that cheese is one of those things that requires craftsmanship. And that uh, basically, in, you know, cheese is, is good because it's made by uh, farmers in a, in a village and uh, it's enjoyed by people on that human scale of things. And so the beauty is not just in the flavor, but in the essence of the thing itself. It's something which can't be mass produced satisfactorily, just like craft ale. Well, w when I was a child, as St. Paul says, I thought as a child, and the only cheese I would eat was Kraft Velveeta, uh, which is like... Now I consider it like a slab of plastic. And then I went to France at age 27 and experienced real cheese. Uh, uh, hundreds, hundreds of different varieties of cheese. And one of my great joys in France on the weekends with a little mobilette, which is a little kind of gas scooter, bicycle scooter type thing, we would travel 30, 40 miles sleeping bags and so on, we, we stop at a little village and we get the cheese of that village and the wine of that village and the charcuterie, the cold cuts in that village, and the bread, aha, the fresh bread from the boulangerie, not from some supermarket. And we would go to a little meadow or something like that or, or a church, you know, yard and, and have this feast. But what a wonderful feast. Every place was different. The cheese was different. The wine was different. The you know, bread was different. Well, the bread was different. I've done exactly the same thing in various places in France. I remember particularly in a place called conch en ouche in Normandy, halfway between the English Channel and Paris, which is called conch en ouche because on the pilgrimage route to Santiago de Compostela from England in the, in the good old days. But exactly the same thing. I mean, the best bread in the world, the best cheese in the world. I think that is the French that have the, that, that choose a lot, particularly in, in wine, and you would know this, is that the word terroir. Terroir, no, yes which is actually something unique to that particular place and soil and what have you, uh, which is just, and that's exactly, I think that's the essence of what this, this essay is about. Right. And to, and he's comparing it, of course, to American uh, industrial food production, uh, which then leads to uh, export, you know, um, and he's making this contrast and, you know, it's true that, when America was, was, America was a wilderness when the Europeans got here. These villages that you mentioned with their bread and their wine and their cheese, you're talking about places that have been under human cultivation for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? And uh, the Europeans get to America and they're breaking dirt that's never been farmed before. They're, they're, it's like, there is no local all, culture. All, all, and of so, all of that's true, Can I Vivian, finish? Just let me finish. So, but of course, but of so course. what happened, though, in, in American history was that the industrialization of products occurred before any local court culture could form in a way. And so as a result, that development of local culture didn't really occur in, in huge uh, sections of America. What's interesting is that on the West Coast here now, where you've got all these vintners, all in Sonoma County and Napa County making wine. You've got microbreweries making uh, craft ale. You've got 
micro cheese cowgirl creamery and all these little cheese places popping up. But it took a while for for places to be under cultivation long enough and 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 a population willing to 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 enjoy these things uh for that to for for that to happen and so uh yeah growing up velveta and wonder bread and all these things you know <laughs> um that that was just so classic american but in fact give it time and this other thing does happen yeah i i, I what i was going to say vivian and, and i'm not dis- disagreeing with you uh, uh but i do think that a lot of this re- a lot of this New craft ale, the the, the vintners, um, the cheese is a rediscovery. I mean, the, 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 the modern word is localism. Chester would use the word distributism. It's a rediscovery of fine things. And I think the problem was industrialism. And it, that didn't only impact America. You can blame America if you love for being first, except it wasn't because England was first with the Industrial Revolution. Uh, you know, and this, industri- this industrialization of the psyche, you know, and particularly the idea that if something you, you always go for the, the, the deal, which is the cheapest, well, you know, that's not necessarily the best approach, certainly not to things such as good quality food, right? So I, th- I think that there's a psychological thing here, which um, the, the British and the Americans are both to blame in. Other countries such as France have, has resi- have resisted somewhat, and, and thanks be to God. Um, but I think we are to be encouraged by the rediscovery of, of, of the small and the beautiful. Right, but in America, the uh, I would have to say it's true that, of course, industrialization began in Britain, but the industrialization of food began here, right? And it began at a time when, um, you know, when I think of my homesteading relatives in, in the Dakota Territory and, and people living in these out-of-the-way places, there were no winemakers and cheesemakers and, I mean... We're talking about barely scratching out a survival, right? And and so the coming of the Sears catalog and the coming of the industrial produced food and these kinds of things was to them something wonderful. Uh, but you're right, there has been this discovery. But in a lot of cases for Americans, it's 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 almost a fresh discovery rather than a rediscovery. And you're absolutely right that the European markets have protected themselves and. Bravo to them for saying, no, we're not going to sell anything called beer here <laughs> that isn't made according to the following standards. And your Budweiser factory in Milwaukee doesn't even come close. So, uh, you know, bravo for them for, for protecting their local products. Well, let me, let me, that's a good example. Let me tell you a little story about that. I was driving with some young uh, seminarians through uh, southern Czechoslovakia at the time. And uh, I came across, we went, we came across this town, went through it, and I saw this big outdoor bar cafe with, with red and white umbrellas saying Budweiser on them. I said, what, what is this? You know, I stopped, you know, we had some of this Budweiser beer. Well, it turns out, that this little town is called Chesterbudovice, or in German, Budweiser. And uh, Anheuser or Busch, one of the two, was traveling in Europe in the 1890s and discovered this beer and came back. to. And by the way, this t- little town was a resort town for Austrian nobility. 
And so it was called Budweiser, the beer of kings. All right. <laughs> so Bush came, comes back to St. Louis and he takes the name and he says, well, we're a democracy. This is the king of beers, you know. And that's how Budweiser beer started. Well, there was a lawsuit in the 1890s uh, from Austria where they said, you can't use that name. And so for years and years, Budweiser beer could not be sold in Europe for that reason. Well, back in the 1980s or 90s, after Budweiser had become the largest producer of beer in the world, 50% of the world market, they went back to now uh, what's called Czech Republic, and they said, we want to be able to sell Budweiser beer here in Austria and in Bavaria. They said, no, this, you, you have no right to use the name. They offered that brewery twice its value so they could buy them out. I read this in the New York Times Business Center. I'll never forget it. New York Times Business Center. And they said, no, we don't want your money. We want our beer. <laughs> that was a great victory, I think, for good beer. A mark, a mark of civilization. Yep. Well, I want, yep. To, I want to read this one quote on page 104 at the top. You know, I hope, why well, myself, I've only just thought of it, that the four rivers of Eden were milk, water, wine, and ale. Aerated waters only appeared after the fall. <laughs> well, tell that to all those spa goers in Europe who go to these. I mean, when I was in Germany in 1976, that one of the families I was staying with, they would drive all this distance to go to these places where the aerated water comes up out of the ground. Out of the ground, yeah. Right? And, and they I, there's a difference between mineral water because the goodness is in the minerals. Uh, you know, if you, yes. if you believe it, certainly not. It's not in the aeration, and most seltzer water is just artificially carbonated. Right. It's, it's but, not but the but the bubbly water. water that comes out of the ground, right? It's full of minerals, and they'd fill all these jugs and bottles and everything and take it home. Yeah. One of the problems uh, that what you mentioned here, Vivian, a lot of problems with early Americans having this kind of local. Uh, cheese or local wine is you really can't grow good grapes for wine anywhere east of California. I'm sorry. I mean, 94% of all the wine produced in the U.S. Is, is produced in California. There's a reason for that. We have the same climate as France and Italy have the Mediterranean climate where it's cool at night and warm, warm in the daytime. It's not, not humid. So That's you really, right. They really couldn't have the, the same kind of a wine and then when they move west of the Appalachians, it's not like you have a lot of top topographical diversity there, you know. It's the Great Plains. What You know, one cow is going to be like another cow and one cheese like another cheese. Whereas in France, you know, and in, in Switzerland and in Germany, the landscape is so variegated that that gives rise to a more, you know, diverse kind of food. Okay, going back to the word terroir we used, I mean, it, it, you can do that in France, or most of you, in England, because that the, the, the top, topography does change. But if you've got the Great Plains, where there's no real variation in topography for, for a thousand miles, then where's the terroir, right? Right. You know, this next chapter is on gargoyles, and I had a lot of things I wanted to say about it, and a lot of things I want to quote from it, because I think they're very characteristic of Chesterton. 
But we're sort of at the half hour mark, and I think maybe we should put this off till next week. Yeah, I think this is one of my favorite essays, and I also have quite a lot I'd like to say about it. So rather than rush it, why don't we start with it next Okay, next week? so that's, this is the 22nd essay on gargoyles, so we will go down to the 31st essay, The Slavery of Free Verse, for next week. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We hope to see you with us next week at the Formed Book Club. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.